Galatians chapter 4, verse 21 to 31. Uh, Verse 21. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively. The woman represents two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Be glad, barren woman, Uh, who never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate women than of her who has a husband. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. And it is the same now. But what does Scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. This is God's word. Thanks, Pony. Morning, everyone. Good to see you all this morning. I'd especially like to... Uh, welcome back our Hopi youth team. Uh, they arrived, I know they took a, yes, you can clap for them. Um, I know they took a red eye uh, from Phoenix and got in at 6 a.m. this morning. Uh, so uh, we welcome them back. Uh, you do have my permission to fall asleep during this time if you want, but only them. Uh, also, I should also welcome back Emily and her kids. Uh, they got back from Japan, I believe, on uh, Friday and I'm sure they're adjusting to, uh, to uh, the time change here in the East Coast, so welcome back to them. When you guys go out um, with friends for, like, you know, coffee, a snack, or a meal, uh, do you ever have that awkward moment, like when the food or drinks come, and you wonder, like, if or when you should say grace? Well, um, Christian comedian John Chris um, has some tips about this, and he made a short video, which I thought you might enjoy watching. So let's see what he has to say. Today we're talking about pre-meal prayer. Very confusing subject. A lot of people don't know when to pray, what to pray for, how to pray, who prays. Hey, do you want me to, should I pray? You want to, should we pray? I don't know. All very confusing. We're going to cover it all today. Let's get started. Chips and salsa. Sometimes they bring it to the table before you're even seated. There's no need to pray for that. Lots of people wonder about appetizers. Do you pray for them? Do you not pray for them? No prayer is necessary for an appetizer if you have entrees coming out later. Salad. That is the most confusing thing on the prayer continuum. If it's a side salad or an appetizer salad, no need for prayer there. Now, if it's a main course salad or you're bringing it out with the rest of everyone else's meal, that then is going to require some kind of prayer. But I put that kind of in a separate category. For the most part, when you're thinking about salads, just remember this. If it requires dressing, it doesn't require a blessing. Do I pray for coffee? 
No, are you a psychopath? No one wants to be next to the person at Starbucks that's praying over a latte, you weirdo. Soup. Do you pray for soup? Do not pray for soup. It's only bowl-related soups. Anything smaller than that is always off the hook. I like to say if it comes in a cup, no need to lift up. Everyone knows if you order a hamburger, that's going to require prayer. But if you order sliders, that does not require prayer. It's a little glitch in the system a lot of people are not aware of. Potato skins, no prayer. Baked potato, prayer. Ask any Bible-believing Christian, they're going to have a different policy on fries. Some say never eat the fries. Some say eat as many as you want. Here's the policy on fries. Up to three fries is acceptable to eat prior to the prayer. That brings us to dessert. Always a very confusing situation. A lot of times people go out to a show, go to a movie. Hey, should we grab some dessert afterward? Yeah, let me get the creme brulee. I love cheesecake. Ugh. You don't need to pray for that because you've already prayed for your meal earlier in the night. Do you hold hands before you pray? That depends on your situation. If it's a personal family gathering, some close-knit Bible study of some sort, sure, a hold hand wouldn't be uncomfortable. Now, if you're on a Tinder date, that might throw off the mood a little bit. Most of the confusion surrounding pre-meal prayer comes from when to actually pray. Let me just say, on behalf of waiters all over the world, please pray when your waiter is not there. There's nothing worse than a waiter coming out with two full arms of fajitas and you're over there mid-prayer of Jabez. Like, what are you doing? Last but certainly not least, who at the table volunteers to lead the prayer? Lots of people say the man should lead the prayer. Why is that? I'm not sure. It's 2018. Maybe we should get that rule adjusted at some point in the near future. A lot of people operate under the most spiritual person at the table. They're going to be the one that should pray because that prayer is going to be the most powerful and effective. So if you got, obviously, a pastor, a missionary, even a Christian blog, Logger of some sort, shoot, even a volunteer youth pastor, that prayer is going to be a little less effective, but it's still going to qualify. If you're just an average person sitting at the table with obviously more spiritual people around you, you're kind of off the hook because I feel like God would be like, hey, how come y'all didn't bless this meal? You'd be like, I don't know. Ask the pastor. He works for you. Okay, so did you get all that? I like that one. If it comes in a cup, no need to list up. Um, well, whether that was helpful or not, I actually hope um, it wasn't helpful at all. Uh, not just because the last part was all wrong. You don't need to have the pastor pray for every meal. Um, but more importantly, you know, Christianity isn't supposed to be boiled down to a set of rules pertaining like, do you pray before salad? Do you pray when soup comes? Do appetizers count? You know, if you've been with us through this series on Galatians, you know this is exactly the type of thing that Paul is writing against. We call it, there were some false teachers going around the church of Galatia telling people that it's great that they have committed their lives to follow Jesus, but that was only part of the equation. In addition, they were telling these people that they needed to follow the laws got handed down to the Israelites in the Old Testament. And this is incorrect. And so Paul, as, they, um, as, as their you know, founder of the church, was alarmed. And as the teaching began to spread, this false teaching began to spread throughout the church, Paul writes this letter to combat this false teaching. If you were here two weeks ago, uh, when I last spoke, I mentioned the purpose of Paul's letter. Uh, but for those who may not have been there or just need a refresher, uh, Paul wrote to show... Uh, sorry, Nate, I, I forgot to, my click. 
the remote. Um, can you change it to the next slide? Prabhupada the show that acceptance by God and maintaining a relationship with him is through faith. It's for all people. And it's not by works or obedience to the law. That's the whole theme of Galatians. And we're uh, previous weeks take looking at the different arguments that Paul has made to support uh, his, his thesis. And so in our passage for this morning, we're going to look at this final argument that Paul makes to support this point that acceptance by God and maintaining a relationship through him, uh, with him is through faith uh, for all people and not by works. And in this passage, this last argument is an interesting one because he goes back to the Old Testament, the very thing that these false teachers are trying to point the people back to, to argue against their claim. You see, it was the conviction of these false teachers who were Jewish is that they had a more special relationship with God because they descended from the line of Abraham. They were part of the chosen people. And so if you wanted to fall into this category of chosen people, you not only had to accept Jesus into your life, but you had to follow what the descendants of Abraham did dutifully back in the Old Testament, which was follow the Old Testament laws. But through these verses, Paul goes back to Genesis 15 to 17 to argue why even being a descendant of Abraham means you don't have to follow the law in order to receive salvation. Hearing the scripture reading for today, um, you may have been confused, you know, with Paul, you know, mentioning all these things about Abraham and Hagar and Sarah and so forth. So let me spend some time recounting uh, the incidents referenced and explaining the, the little diagram that you see in the outline in your bulletin. If you have your Bibles, do turn uh, to Genesis 15, and we'll look at some verses there. To begin, um, you don't have to turn there, but in Genesis 12, God promised Abraham that he would make he and his his descendants into a great nation. But at the beginning of Genesis 15, we find that Abraham still has no children uh, by birth. At this time, he's 86. His wife, Sarah, is 76. So in verse 2 of chapter 15, we see he resigns himself to the fact that his servant will be his heir. He tells God in Galatians 15, verses 2 to 3, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus, who was his servant at the time. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then God responds, beginning in verse 4, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is of your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if you indeed can count them. Then he said to them, So shall your offspring be. So God once again made a promise to Abraham to give him an ear. And it says in verse 6, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. God promised to give Abraham a son, even though it seemed humanly impossible, so that Abraham would rely solely on God. A little while passes, though, and God doesn't seem to be coming through. So in Genesis 16, he and Sarah kind of do what a lot of people would do in this situation. They kind of come up with their own plan to help fulfill God's promise. 
It'd be like if someone today was, you know, got a message from God, a, a single person, got a message from God that God promised this person a spouse and that they would be getting married soon. The person's elated, but maybe, you know, one, one a month passes by or two and nothing happened. So the person, you know, decides to help God in this situation. You know, they go on these websites, like, I don't know what you call them, like cappuccino and donuts or something like that to help God out. And he goes on the website and, you know, he starts looking at girls. Oh, you know, this one looks very cute. She's very attractive. Oh, she's a Christian. Great. This must be the one. Thank you, Jesus. And that's, in, in essence, what Abraham and Sarah did. Sarah was past childbearing years, but God promised Abraham a son. So if Sarah couldn't conceive, they thought, well, Sarah's servant, Hagar, could. So let's do it through Hagar. So they went ahead with their plan, and Abraham and Sarah did have a, or Abraham and Hagar did have a child, and they named him Ishmael. But this wasn't God's planned child for them. God tells Abraham in Genesis 17 that Ishmael is not to be the child of his covenant. And in that chapter, God reaffirms the promises he made to Abraham and states that Sarah will bear a child who is the one through whom his promises will be revealed. So for those familiar with this story, you know that though they initially doubted, God did allow Sarah to conceive and they had a child and they named him Isaac. Back in Galatians 4, Paul uses Hagar and Sarah and the birth of Ishmael and Isaac to illustrate two covenants, as he states in verse 24. He relates this to Mount Sinai, Jerusalem, the Jerusalem of slavery, freedom. What's the connection between all these things? Well, let me explain. Mount Sinai, if you remember, is the place where God handed down the law to the Israelites. Paul connects Hagar to Mount Sinai because just as Abraham and Cyril tried to get God's promised blessing through their own power, through their own efforts, so it was with those who are under the law. They're not relying on God. They're just relying on their own strength to try to do good works and obey the law to receive favor from God. Ishmael was born out of flesh, born out of self-reliance. And in the same way, those who are under the law live their lives out of self-reliance to try to earn favor with God. Because he, Ishmael was not accepted as an heir to Abraham, the heir to which God would fulfill his promises, he retained the same status as his mother who conceived, which was a slave. So Paul's saying it's the same for those who must feel they, they must work to follow the law to be accepted by God. Doing so creates a form of legalism which makes one a slave under the law. In verse 25, Paul tells the Galatians that this represents the present Jerusalem because this is where these false teachers were coming from. Those who were trying to get them to become slaves under the law. And then on the other side of the illustration, you have Sarah. Isaac was not born through reliance on either Abraham or Sarah's power. He was born through faith in God's power. And so referring to Sarah, Paul writes in verse 26 that she represents the Jerusalem above, and she is our mother. The Jerusalem above refers to the place where God dwells. 
So just like how Isaac was conceived, for those who are believers in Christ, our life flows down from God. It's through his work and power that we are saved, not our own. And Sarah, spiritually speaking, is the initial mother of all believers because of her reliance on God to fulfill his promise to create a people for himself. So these are the two covenants, Paul would explain. One relates to Hagar and Ishmael and will keep you enslaved to the law as you rely on your works to be accepted by God. The other relates to Sarah and Isaac and will give you freedom as you rely on faith in Jesus and the work that he has done to receive acceptance by God. He warns the church in Galatia, these false teachers may be descendants of Abraham, but they're descendants from the line of Hagar because they remain enslaved to the law and are trying to get you to be slaves. So if you follow them, you're not from Hagar. You're, I mean, you're not from Abraham and Sarah. You're from Hagar. And so he asks, why would you return to slavery when you have received this freedom in Christ? Remember that you're not from the line of Hagar. You're from the line of Sarah. And so live as children of the free woman. Don't live as slaves. Live as free. But having said all this, you know, there's a good follow-up question that you may be wondering about. Well, what does it mean to live as children of the free woman? What does it mean to live in freedom? Or to put it another way, you know, what is being truly free? If you were here two weeks ago and remembered uh, something I pointed out uh, during that message, or recall something you may be already familiar with, you may argue, and argue well, that there is no such thing as living in freedom. Paul, as we looked in Galatians 4, does definitely state that we can live freely, right? He concludes our passage at the end of verse 31. We are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. So if we're children of the free woman, then, of course, we're free. Well, look at what he writes elsewhere in Romans 6. If you turn to Romans 6 and look at verse 16 to 18, you'll see that he says this. Romans 6, 16 to 18. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey? whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. So here we see in Romans that he does acknowledge that believers have been set free from sin, but he also states that they're slaves to righteousness. So how can you be free and be a slave? Is Paul contradicting himself? Are we free or are we slaves? Well, to answer this question, we need to have a clear understanding of what freedom really means. When people think of freedom, initially people see it as being able to do what you want to do when you want to do it, right? If you want to take a day off of work, or skip school one day. Freedom means being able to do these things and have no negative ramifications happen. So you can take a day off of work and not get fired. You can 
miss your exam at school, and no penalty will occur. That's freedom. And so theoretically, when we think of the concept of freedom, we would probably acknowledge that there's three requirements needed to have freedom. And the three requirements are desire, opportunity, and ability. Desire, opportunity, and ability. You first have to have the desire to do something or not do something. If you're about to do something you really want to do and you choose to do it, great. But if you're about to do something that you don't want to do, but for some reason you're forced to do it, there's no freedom there, right? So you have to have the desire to want to do it or not want to do it. Then you have to have the opportunity to do it. It's kind of a, a little example that I thought of. Uh, in past years, I've gone on uh, overseas mission trips. And the places we go to, um, it often happens towards the end of the trip, after being there for a couple weeks. Our team members, myself included, usually begin to really crave meat. And the reason we really begin to crave meat is um, usually the local cuisine just consists of eating a lot of vegetables with very little meat. And so having had that for, you know, two meals, I mean, two to three meals a day for two weeks in a row, you know, we're craving meat. The food, I mean, the food didn't taste bad, it just, there was no meat. And so in this case, we had the desire to eat meat, but we had no opportunity to eat meat because there was none presented. Let's say after the trip, we make a pit stop. On the way back from Asia, we make a pit stop in Japan. And say, we don't just go to any place in Japan, we go to Kobe, Japan. And we start walking around the streets and we start passing by the restaurants and looking in the windows and we see, you know, the Japanese restaurants have all these plastic models of food, you know, display what they're going to serve. And we saw these pictures of Kobe beef, right? And we start salivating because we really want meat. But then to the side, we notice of the, of the dishes are the prices. And we find, do our math and convert the yen to, you know, U.S. dollars, and we find, oh, you know, an eight-ounce piece of Kobe beef costs about 150 U.S. dollars, which is probably about 140 more dollars than we have, right? So we have the desire to eat meat, and there's the opportunity. There's no ability because we can't afford to eat it. So there's no freedom there. I mean, none of this was true. In, actually, in actuality, what really happens is we don't stop in Japan. We stop at another place which has a, has a McDonald's. And we, in the past, we've just gone to McDonald's, and you should see the empty boxes of Big Macs and Quarter Pounder burgers just stacked up after we're done. But anyway, you can see how, you know, we acknowledge that in order to have true freedom, you need to have desire, opportunity, and ability. And if you don't have any of all three of these things, you don't have freedom. But in thinking about this and reading something um, that I was reading by John Piper, he makes a very good case that to really have true freedom, there's a fourth component needed. And that fourth com- component is the ability to do what will make you most happy for eternity. So the fourth component is Eternal happiness. Eternal happiness. I read about another author who shared the story of his father, who at a young age decided to use his freedom to smoke cigarettes. He began doing so and he found he enjoyed it immensely. 
When he was young, he grew to like it so much, he smoked three packs a day. But when he got older, he decided, well, I should start living a more healthy lifestyle, so he wanted to quit smoking. So he went to all these, you know, stop smoking programs. Uh, the author said his father even tried shock therapy, among other things, but nothing worked. The author wrote that right after the shock treatment, he came out and he smoked a cigarette. His dad chose to use his freedom to smoke, but later he became enslaved by it. And the author continued that his dad eventually contracted um, cancer and emphysema, which led to his demise. So though the father had the opportunity, desire, and ability to choose to smoke, it led to suffering and death. So is freedom truly free if this is what the result is? And you may argue that, well, yeah, I mean, he had the freedom to choose this path. He could have chosen not to smoke, and probably none of this would have happened. But the question was, if he knew 50 years earlier, say, what he knew when he was near death, would he have said that that freedom helped them choose what was best? And would he have made the same choice all over again if he could have done it all over? You know, probably in his younger days he thought his freedom was used to allow him to do what he thought might bring him the most happiness because that would have been his goal in making this choice only to find out many years later that it really brought no happiness at all. And so you can see why this component of eternal happiness is necessary to really have true freedom. Because if we're not able to do what will bring us eternal happiness, then the things we're doing really don't provide us freedom. So this is why Paul can write in Galatians to live as children of the free woman. But in Romans, that we are all enslaved to something. Because we were all initially enslaved to sin. Prior to becoming a Christian, a person either realizes he does bad things and needs to do good, so he does good works and tries to obey you know, God's commands in order, in, excuse me, in order to try to be accepted by God. But then the person probably realizes that they're not very good at keeping the law and we fail. Well, on the other hand, the person can reject God outright, thinking his freedom can be used to do whatever he thinks will make him happy, but then finds it really isn't that satisfying or doesn't bring that much happiness. The scripture teaches us that through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we can be set free from having to do the good works to be accepted by God. Our sins can be forgiven, and we receive the Holy Spirit to transform us and empower us to live our lives free for God. So rather than being slaves to sin, like Paul writes in Romans, we can be slaves to righteousness. But by being transformed and living as slaves to righteousness, we are living in true freedom because we are able to do through the Holy Spirit what will give us the most joy and satisfaction, not only in this life, but for eternity. So you can see that not only do you need desires, opportunity, and ability, you need the freedom to be able to choose what will make you the most happy. And when we come 
to recognize and realize that these things are only found in Christ, that's when we experience true freedom. So Paul concludes, live your lives as children of the free woman. Live by faith in the promises of God and the power of the Holy Spirit to experience what true freedom means in Christ. Where you no longer enslave to sin, but you choose to be enslaved to righteousness because you know that through living as slaves to righteousness and through the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, you do have the desires, opportunity, and the ability to live in freedom for Christ and to live what will make you most happy and satisfied, not only in this life, but for eternity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that though we were trapped in sin, that we were slaves to sin. Out of your grace and mercy, you came to save us. You gave us the Holy Spirit to transform us and to be able to see what is true and what is right. And to allow us to truly experience this freedom and being able to do what will provide us lasting joy and satisfaction. As the psalmist says, Lord, you know, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So we thank you, Lord, for calling us your children, for bringing us into your family, for saving us from a life of slavery to a life of freedom. For all these things in Jesus' name, amen.